Let's pray together. Our God, we pause and bow our heads and our hearts before you for a moment to say that we need you. We need you to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to believe, our minds to understand your word, to understand its importance for us, its significance for us, and that through it we might see Jesus and have life. Come do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, the well-known, famous writer, has this very popular quote that often Christians love to quote where he's trying to engage people who are trying to figure out who Jesus is. They're trying to decide what they think about Jesus, and here's the quote. I'm sure many of you have heard it before, but hear it once more. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's been quoted many, many, many times over because there's a brilliant sort of logic to Lewis's argument. He says, look, you can't hear the things that Jesus said and see the things that Jesus did and just simply conclude that he was a good man, a good moral teacher. Lewis's argument is to say, essentially, either he's a lunatic, do you hear him on the level of someone who claims to be a poached egg, or he's maybe a demon. You could spit out as the devil of hell, or maybe he's Lord, but not some other option, Lewis says. Some have summarized this to say, essentially what he's saying is either Jesus is mad, or Jesus is bad, or Jesus is in fact God. Now, I think, in some ways, that's exactly what Mark is trying to present for us also in the passage we're looking at today. You just heard it. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. So grab a Bible. That's where we're going to be. Just leave it open. We'll sit in that passage. Mark 3, 20 to 35. And I almost wonder if Lewis didn't first read this passage before writing that quote. Because what you'll see in this passage is also that some people in Jesus' own day were coming to figure who he is. And they were coming to some very different conclusions about him. In quite literally, in this passage, some are saying that he's a lunatic. That's exactly what they're saying. That he's out of his mind, that he is insane. Others are saying that he's got a demon, that you could spit at him like a devil from hell, just like Lewis said. And some are saying, wait, he might be something else. In essence, this passage is also saying either he's mad or he's very bad, Or perhaps, Mark would say, he's God. That's what you'll see in this text. The other thing that I think might catch you in this text also is that the people you would expect to get Jesus right get him wrong. And the people you expect to get him wrong get him right. Or to say it another way, the people you expect to be in with Jesus are out. And the people that you expect to be out with Jesus are in. 
All of that is happening in this passage. It starts in verse 20. So look there with me. And what you'll see right at verse 20 is, again, the popularity of Jesus is spreading. If you were here last week, Pastor Sibby preached for us, and he used the analogy of the Pope coming to town. Remember when the Pope showed up, this one man, people from every part of our city and every part of our country and even every part of our world descended on this one city to see this one man. That's what we see about Jesus throughout these first chapters in the gospel according to Mark. Everyone is coming. It's the same thing here in verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. Right? Then he went home, the crowd gathers again so that he can't even eat. Now the only home we've seen in the gospel according to Mark so far is Peter's house. In Capernaum, if you remember some chapters back, we saw that Jesus went to the synagogue, afterwards went to Peter's house, healed his mother-in-law, the crowds came. Then the next time he shows up in Capernaum, the crowds come. Here he is again at the home, perhaps of Peter, the crowds come. And you get this little, almost inconsequential detail, so much so that we couldn't even eat. As one preacher says, it's these little details, almost like if you remember, Mark's words are Peter's voice. Right? Peter's memoir is what Mark is writing. And it's almost as if you can hear Peter saying, I remember that day. I was so hangry, right? Because we were, we were all there and we couldn't even eat because they were all pressing around us and everyone was nuts about Jesus. And, and here's the funny thing about the twist now. While everyone's going nuts about Jesus, Jesus' family hears it and thinks that Jesus is the one who's nuts. Right? Look at verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Do you hear that? The crowds are pressing in, and Jesus' family hears of all the ruckus and commotion that their eldest son is causing in Israel. And they conclude, this boy is out of his mind. You wonder, I wonder, what kind of reports were coming back to the family home in Nazareth? You wonder what kind of news was spreading about Jesus. What were they hearing back in Nazareth? They were hearing that their eldest son, their older brother, was always getting in trouble with the elders of the community. You wonder how that sat back home as they got one report after another that Jesus was in trouble again. And who was he in trouble with? With the religious leaders, with the respected folks. This is the, the pastors of your community constantly sending bad reports about your kid home. This is the elders of the community. And, and you're wondering all the time. You wonder if the family was starting to get a bad name with Jesus. How constantly it seemed like none of the scribes or the Pharisees or the rabbis or any of the religious Bible folks had anything good to say about this man. You wonder if, if some busybody lady didn't come over. And say, Mary, listen, I don't want to say anything about how you raised your boy. That's none of my business. But you better do something about your son. Whatever it was, Jesus' family back in Nazareth hears all the claims that Jesus is making, all the commotion Jesus is causing, all the things the religious leaders are saying about him, and they conclude, this boy has lost his mind. We're going to go get him and seize him and bring him home. Can I be honest? When I first read this, the detail of a family trying to control their 30-year-old unmarried son, the sort of first thing that came to my mind was, is, this, is Jesus Indian and we just don't know it, right? 
Now, my non-Indian friends, this might not make sense to you, but this sounds like a typical Indian family, right? You've got a 30-year-old guy, he's unmarried, he's supposed to be the pride of your home, and all you're getting are bad reports about him. I can almost imagine a relative sort of nodding their head, going, that's enough, no more, none of this. We knew he shouldn't have left business to go into full-time ministry. We've got to go get this boy, lock him in our basement, that's enough of this, this ministry stuff. Now, here's the other thing I want you to hear. As I thought of this, as I reflected on it, it seemed to me, if you have ever been at odds with your family because of your commitment to God, Jesus would come to you and say, I know what that's like. And I imagine for some of you that's important to hear. If you've ever found yourself at odds in some of the closest relationships in your life, because of your greater commitment to God, Jesus would come right beside you and say, I know exactly what that's like. Listen, I'm a, a big honor your elders guy. I, I grew up in a good family. I grew up in a good church. I had relatively a great experience. I didn't have sort of an angst about my elders or this, this thought that we were going to do it better or rebel against them. And yet, I know that where that can turn off where that can go too far is that it almost becomes the family can never do anything wrong, and almost this thing replaces God. It becomes this idol in your life. I remember getting into an argument with a good friend who wanted to go to missions. Their parents wouldn't let them. And my response was basically, well, if God wanted you to go, your parents would have said yes. I think about that, and I'm not sure I was right about that. There will come times, it seems, where your commitment to some other relationship, whether that be your family, whether that be some other relationship in your life, will come to crosshairs with the relationship you have with God. And then you'll be pressed to choose. If I'm seeing this right, the Bible is saying there are moments in Jesus' life when his commitment to God was not understood by his family. And you wonder, as Mark is writing this, one commentator pointed out how many of Mark's readers, as they're reading this for the first time, found themselves ostracized or disowned by their family because of their commitment to this Jew from Nazareth. And what it would have done to their hearts to know what I am feeling in this very moment, Jesus knew as well. I mean, you, you imagine, what was it like for Jesus of Nazareth to hear that his family thought that he was out of his mind? And soon thereafter to hear other words of slander spoken of him as well. The truth is, some of you in this very room know very well what it's like when your commitment to God butted heads with your commitment to some other relationship, even your family. Some of you have literally left another religion and come to Jesus and have experienced family strain. Some of you have literally walked into the conversation of wanting to go into ministry and that be totally misunderstood. Some of you, even to come to this church, have experienced family strain. And I'd say to you, it would be good for your soul to hear that in that place where you feel like you've brought family shame or if you feel like you've been disowned or ostracized in those closest of relationships, Jesus would come to you and say, I know exactly what that's like. And maybe that would do some good for your heart. Moreover, it's, as you keep hearing the story, what you find out is if what Jesus' thought, family thought of him was that he was insane, that was mild compared to what the religious leaders of his day thought of him as well. 
In fact, what happens now is that the story about Jesus' family gets interrupted for a moment as Mark wants to tell you about what the religious leaders were saying about Jesus. Now, one word about the sort of structure of this. As I read, studied, heard from others, it, it seems that Mark seems to often do this thing where it's almost called like a Mark sandwich. He'll start with a story, go to something else, and then come back to the story. And what he's doing in that is he's tying the two stories together to give you a point. So, so in this story, for example, you've got this first level, the, the bread. He lays down the bread. Jesus' family thinks he's insane. They're going to go get him. And then you get the middle of the sandwich where the religious leaders think he's demon-possessed and they're going to speak out again. And then Mark is going to lay the bread again at the top and say, and now Jesus' family shows up to seize him. So that's the story. Now here's the middle of the sandwich, of Mark's sandwich. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So not only has Jesus just been thought of by his family as being out of his mind, now the religious leaders show up from Jerusalem and they say, this man is not just out of his mind, he, he is possessed by demons. It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. You, you see what's happening now is the opposition to Jesus continues to escalate and grow. If you've been following in Mark with us, you, you know this all stirred with, started with just a murmur in their hearts. Why does this Jesus say this? He's committing blasphemy. That's what the scribes thought in their heart. Then it comes out to their tongues, and they ask the disciples, why does your master do this? Then they go straight to Jesus and say, why do you do this? And now the escalation has grown to the point that there is now a public word coming from sort of religious headquarters in Jerusalem slandering Jesus. This man is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of the demons is how he casts out demons. See, what they're doing is they can't deny that he's doing incredible, amazing things. They're not trying to say he's a fraud or a phony. These shows of power are a trick somehow. What they're trying to say is there's no question about his power. What we can raise a question about is what's the source of that power? Right? There's no doubt he's doing amazing things, but where is he getting the power to do those amazing things? And the answer they come up with is from the devil. That where Jesus is getting the power to do what he's doing is from the devil. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus essentially says, what you're saying is absurd. What you're saying is nonsense. Look at verse 23. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? He says to the scribes, listen, you guys are bright. I get it. You have more degrees than a thermometer. But let me ask you just one question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Tell me exactly, how does that work? If I am exercising demons and you're saying it's by the power of demons, how are demons enabling me to cast out demons? That's what he says, verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus says, listen, I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem to me that usually kingdoms advance by fighting against itself. Right? It's, it's the quote here that Abraham Lincoln would take and borrow to express the threat that was facing the union. 
This civil war, he said, is a house divided against itself. It will not be able to stand. That was from Jesus. Jesus said, listen, you can't punch yourself in the nose. That doesn't work. Right? That's not how you defeat the enemy. This house, if Satan is trying to go against Satan, his kingdom would come to an end. He's saying, if Satan's empire is in a civil war, then it wouldn't be able to stand. How are you saying it's by Satan that I'm casting out Satan? And then it's almost as if he says, now listen, while you're totally wrong about that, you are right about one thing. You are right that Satan's kingdom is under attack. You are right that his house is under siege. But it's not through some internal civil war within Satan's empire. It's rather because my arrival means that the kingdom of God has touched down on this planet and what you are seeing is the clash of two kingdoms. You are right, Satan's house is being ransacked. But it's not because I have derived my power from Beelzebub. It's instead because someone stronger than Satan has just showed up. And let me tell you what I've come to do. Verse 27. Since you're not getting it, let me tell you exactly what's happening with these exorcisms, with these demons being cast out, with these captives being set free. It's verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. He's saying, you're right, Satan is under attack. But listen, till now, Satan has been this strong man, and all of you have been captives in his house. And these people who have been oppressed and demonized, they have been in his house. And yet, here's what my ministry is. I have come as one stronger than the strong man. And while my family is trying to seize me and they can't, I have come to seize him, to bind him, and to take his plundered goods, to take his captives and turn them into trophies of God's deliverance and grace. That's what I have come for. Hear me, Christian. Jesus is saying to us, I'm not mad, and I'm not bad. I'm, I'm not a lunatic, and I am not possessed by a demon. What I have come to do is to grab each one of you, plunder you from Satan's empire, and transfer you into God's house. Essentially, that's what this text is. You are being taken from one house and put into another house. You are being plundered from the house of the evil one and put into the house of God. This is what Jesus Christ came to do. Paul would reflect on this in Colossians when we studied through it. You remember this verse? He says, he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the domain of light, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. This is what Jesus Christ has come to do. If you're here and you have spiritual life, if you have an ounce of faith in your heart, it's because Jesus Christ came, bound up the one who had bound you up, and plundered you from his house and put you into the Father's home. Very literally, in fact, at the end of this passage, you'll see you have been put into the new family, the, the family of God, from one house to another. That's why I've come. And then Jesus gives these scribes a warning. In fact, a very, very severe warning. If you hear it and take it into your heart, it's a, a fear-causing warning. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness 
but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. There's hardly been a person who's ever read that verse and not at some point felt some panic in their heart. Because Jesus is saying here a very strong word. He's saying there is a sin that never has forgiveness. There is a sin that a person can commit that never has forgiveness. That's what he says. Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. He's saying there is a sin that human beings can commit that never has pardon with God. You think of that. If a person says to you, I'll never forgive you, you can move on. You'll find someone else to accept you or maybe the person will change their mind. What is it when God declares, I will never forgive you? Ten billion years from now, this will still be an issue. There will still be no forgiveness, no pardon, no relinquishment of my wrath. You will be eternally guilty. Now if you let that in, you can imagine how many people have sat in a pastor's office or on a counselor's couch and asked, how do I know if I committed that sin? How do I know if I did that? You can wonder how many consciences have been troubled, how many hearts have been devastated at the thought, what if I did that? Have I come close to that? In fact, I want you to hear, just literally a few weeks ago, I got an email about this very verse asking about this very verse and troubled over this very verse had been committed or not. So what is it? How should we understand this severe warning of verse 29? You can imagine there's been lots written about it. This is not exactly the easiest verse to understand. But as I've read, I think one of the clues that often Bible teachers and commentators point to is look at verse 30. That the way to understand 29 is verse 30 because he says, for, the reason he gives this warning is for, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Essentially what he's saying here is, I think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that these scribes were so hardened in their resistance to Jesus that they were ascribing to the devil the works of the Son of God. They were saying that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had His power originate from the demonic. They were so hardened, so opposed, so resistant to Jesus Christ that they were equating Jesus with the devil. And that was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We're not sure if the scribes themselves here are said to have committed this sin. But almost Jesus' warning is, you are coming dangerously close to the point of no return. So resistant in your opposition towards me that you would ascribe to the evil one who I am and what my works are. You ought to be careful. You are on the point of the no return, of, the, of going into the abyss of hell from which you cannot come back. Now, here's what I think you need to hear. While this is a warning that we should take seriously, I want to say to you that rather than fear, this verse can actually bring you comfort. One preacher said it's, it's a strange comfort from a place you don't expect it, which is if you're worried about committing this sin, I think that's a good sign that you have not committed this sin. In fact, ironically, the fear that you've committed this sin is evidence that you haven't committed this sin. 
Because if your heart is tender enough to wonder, have I done this so as to be cast off from God, it's good evidence that your heart is not so hardened and opposed because the heart that has committed this sin does not care of its standing with God. Here's what I want you to hear. This verse is not here to torment the tender conscience of a Christian. This heart is here to warn the hardened heart of the scribes and those like them. God didn't give you this verse to torment the tender heart and tender conscience of a Christian. God gave this verse to the scribes and those like them who would be so hardened in their opposition to Jesus that they would find themselves beyond the point of return. What I also want you to hear is that verse 29 can at sometimes feel so hopeless that we miss an incredibly hopeful word in verse 28. Sometimes we're so magnetized by what is verse 29 saying that we skip over the incredible good news Jesus said in verse 28. He just said in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. You should hear that. All sin, all sin of which you repent of, there is forgiveness for. Is that not good news for the troubled heart, for the guilty conscience? You know when you were a kid and you shouted out carelessly, I hate God? There's forgiveness for that. You know when you were immature and, and you spoke with a filthy mouth and dragged Jesus' name through the mud and uttered all kinds of blasphemies, there's forgiveness for that. You know the things that you've done and the things you've said and the things that you've thought, there's forgiveness for that. All sin. In fact, if you're one of those who highlight or underline, you should underline all. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter from their mouth is what Jesus is saying. If your heart is tender enough to repent, to confess, then Jesus is saying all your sins can be forgiven. This is why I've come. Jesus came to live the life we were supposed to live. Last week I heard a pastor say it wonderfully in Boston. He said in every place you were supposed to say yes to God and didn't, Jesus did. Every place you were supposed to say no to sin and didn't, Jesus said no. He lived the life you were supposed to live and then died the death you deserve to die in your place so that all your sins might be forgiven. Jesus is saying, I'm not insane and I'm not a demon. I'm not mad and I'm not bad. I am instead the one who has come to bind the evil one and set the captives free, and forgive you of all your sins. Here's how Mark finishes his sandwich. Now the top bread again. Because now he comes back to the family. Verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now in the gospel according to Mark, this is the first time Jesus' family is mentioned. Meaning you don't get the Christmas story like you do in Matthew or Luke. So you're not introduced to the fact that Mary has heard from an angel and all those things. And yet if you're reading this and you do know those stories, part of you wants to go, really, Jesus' mother was here? 
Mary didn't get what Jesus was and what he was about and who he was. You, you think to yourself, Mary, that, that, that if Jesus stood up and drew out his timeline, that there'd be a little bump where he'd say, yeah, there was a season where me and mom was at odds, where there was a strain in our relationship. And part of you wants to go, look, if, if Jesus' family, if Mary doesn't get it, who does? Right? That, that's the question. If all the religious leaders, all the pastors of their day, all the Bible scholars, all the scribes, in fact, the family members of Jesus, if they don't get it, then who does? In fact, even notice where they're positioned. They're standing outside, and they sent to call. They don't even go into the house. They fetch a boy, and they say, listen, go get that guy, and tell him to come outside. Tell him his family is waiting outside. They're on the outside. If they're on the outside, you want to ask, who on earth is on the inside? Verse 32. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother and sister. I think if you read with fresh eyes, Jesus of Nazareth will never stop surprising you, right? Who is this that someone comes in and says, listen, your family is standing outside, and Jesus says, who are my family? Who are my mother and my brothers? They come and say, Jesus, your family, your family is outside, and Jesus responds by saying, my family is right here. Your family's out there, and he says, my family is right here. Jesus has just redefined family, has come to say, I have come to create a new family with relationships that run even thicker and deeper than blood. I've come to bring you into relationships that run even thicker and stronger than flesh and blood. He looks at his disciples, the ones we saw last week were called by Jesus, and imagine their hearts. They have left everything to follow Jesus. Imagine what it was like to be in that room and have Jesus look you in the face and say, you're my brothers. You're my sisters. You're my family. I mean, do you, do you see the switch here? The Bible scholar is on the outside, and the tax collector is on the inside. Goodness, the family of Jesus is on the outside. And and the zealots and the tax collectors and these apostles are on the inside. And in fact, Jesus extends this even to us. Look at verse 35. He not only thinks of the 12 and the disciples who are gathered there. He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Meaning Jesus had you in mind as well. Isn't it something for your heart to hear? He is not ashamed to look at you and call you brother. To say, you're my family. You're on the inside of this. At least one of the things we should take away from this is those who think they are close to Jesus should think again. And those who think they are too far away from Jesus should take hope. What this scene, I think, does is it disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Or it, uh, affl the afflicted are comforted and the comfortable are afflicted. This scene is saying, look, if Mary, 
And later you'll find out Jesus' brother James, who becomes this pillar of the early church, if they're called into question, how much more us who, humanly speaking, are close to Jesus? How much more we should think to ourselves, just because I have been born into a Christian family, just because I've never missed a Sunday, just because I know the backwards and forwards of the Bible, does not mean I'm in. In fact, all you'd be saying is, I have the resume the scribes did, and they were on the outside of all this. It should also tell our hearts, on the other hand, if your life is a mess, and you've committed sins, and not the respectable kinds, the horrible kinds, and you see yourself as too far gone, there's hope to say, you could be the one he looks at and say, you're my brother, you're my mother, and my sister. It's all who come trusting not in their resume, but in this Jesus, that he says, I bind you into a new family. There's also a takeaway that I'll let you think about, which is, what does this also mean for our relationships with one another? If Jesus is my brother and Jesus is your brother, that means we're brothers. He's come to establish a new family. And what ought that to mean in our relationships with one another? What does it mean, not hypothetically, but really for us to see ourselves as family? And if you treat these relationships with one another hypothetically, then you should imagine that your relationship with Jesus is hypothetical as well. But if he is really in relationship with you as a brother, then you are really in relationship with one another as brothers and sisters as well. So what does that mean? What does that say about how we think about how we spend time and eat and fellowship and reconcile and what our relationships with one another look like? If Jesus is my brother and Jesus is your brother, that makes us brothers and sisters as well. Mark is saying here, some called him a lunatic. Some called him a demon from hell, but he wasn't mad and he wasn't bad. He was God. He had come to bind Satan, to set the captives free, and to forgive us of all our sins making us his family. Let's pray together.